Well, if you're grateful for the love of God, won't you just give God a hand clap of praise right now? Amen. 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 My name is Brian Loritz. I bring you greetings from New York City, where I have the joy of serving, yeah, one person, New York City, uh, where I have the joy of serving uh, the Trinity Grace Church there. Uh, It is one church in 11 locations across Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens, and so my Sundays are pretty full, Um, and so I'm grateful to just preach one time to you all uh, this morning and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with you. The Bible says the way that we know that the love of God abides in us is that we love others. The way in which you know that you are saved, in which you have been saved by grace through faith, is that you don't become a reservoir for the love of God, but we are a river, a channel of that love. And the love that we give to others is regardless of socioeconomic status and ethnicity. We love. To help us with this and to unpack this theme a little bit more, I want to encourage you to meet me in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. I'm honored to be here. Uh, I, I won't take too long with you. I was reminded of the time in which I was uh, preaching at a, at a Presbyterian church in Charlotte, North Carolina, not too long ago. And I was, um, I was preaching, and I, uh, right before I got to preach, I asked the pastor, how long do I have? I want to be respectful of your time. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He says, oh, dear brother, time means nothing here. We are a spirit-filled, spirit-led group. You let the Lord use you for however long he wants to use you. But the people leave at 12. (laughs) So we want to be used by the Spirit with conscious of of time as well. This is the last sermon that Jesus preaches prior to the cross. Right after this, he will be betrayed, beaten, bound, ultimately crucified. Yet, praise God, he got up from the grave three days later. And right before all of this happens, Jesus says these words, beginning in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left... Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked or naked as they'd say in Memphis where I ministered. And you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now what's interesting here is he calls them righteous. Please notice that that the righteous person is not just the person who has a personal quiet time with Jesus. But it is the righteous person who puts shoe leather on their faith. 
and who is a vehicle and a conduit of God's justice to the least of these. Or as Tim Keller says, it is the righteous person who disadvantages themselves for the advantage of others. Then verse 41 he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you curse into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry, verse 32, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These are harrowing words. Jesus is saying to us fundamentally, if life, Brian, for you is all about clothes and buying video games for your kids and stuff, and you do nothing for the least of these, you go to hell. This is a very un-American sermon Jesus preaches. And it sounds like he's preaching work salvation. He is not. So we have some work to do. Let's pray. Father, for this gathering of churches who have come together, I bless you, I praise you for this one Charleston movement, Lord God, for Marcus and Philip and Mike and all the various pastors who are leading it, Lord God. Thank you. Thank you for the vision. As we've talked all this weekend, Lord God, about what the gospel looks like horizontally, Lord Jesus, especially as it relates to race relations. God, I do pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. But this morning, Lord God, we turn now to an issue that, is, that has racial implications, but it is now this issue of justice and justice to those who are socioeconomically different from us. Oh, that the church of Charleston would rise up and would catch a greater vision, Father, for what your gospel entails and requires of us. That people would look in on the church of Charleston and say, oh, how they love even the least of these. So that in Lord God, that I ask that you would use me, stand in my body, as the old African-American preachers are prone to say, think with my mind and speak with my tongue. Those things you would have us know, say, and do. It is in Jesus' name I ask these things, amen and amen. On October 27, 1787, a young 25-year-old white dude sat down and wrote these words in his journal. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. That man's name is William Wilberforce. If you have not drunk deeply from the life of William Wilberforce, oh, that you would get familiar with this great hero of the faith. 
Parenthetically, one of the greatest things that you and I could ever do, one of the greatest, most nourishing spiritual disciplines we could ever do is to read great biographies on those men and women of the faith and to see how they loved and followed Jesus. It will set your heart aflame. He's 25 years old at the time, but in order to really grasp the context for what he's saying here, we have to back up, not all the way to the beginning of his life, but we should back up at least four years prior to, and here is William Wilberforce at the age of 21, church history would tell us, he's at a party with his dear friend William Pitt. Now, I I don't know if they had too much champagne to drink or whatever, but on a whim, they turn to each other and say, let's run for parliament, Drawing on his vast, abundant resources, William Wilberforce came from a lot of money. Uh, He decides to run for parliament, and lo and behold, at the age of 21, he wins his seat in parliament. He would never lose his seat again for the next 50-plus years in which he served. Fast forward now, four years later, at the age of 25, William Wilberforce now experiences what Rosaria Butterfield calls the train wreck of the gospel. The great hound of heaven, Jesus Christ, invades this parliamentarian's life. And when Jesus comes into his life, he flips his life upside down and begins to poke his nose into various places in William Wilberforce's life and causes him to be asked rather invasive and intrusive questions. Now that God is in his heart and life, William Wilberforce begins to ask questions like, how can I reconcile my newfound faith in Jesus with the fact that I give leadership to a nation that is thriving off of the social evil of slavery? I'm here to tell you if your testimony is I got saved and not much changed, but Jesus Christ kind of rearranged the, the, the furniture in my life, you need to recheck the authenticity of your salvation. Because when Jesus comes into your life, he does not come in to rearrange the furniture. He comes to totally blow up the new house and to make a new house. Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. This is William Wilberforce. He gets saved, man, and God starts messing with him. And he's thinking, well, there's no way I can continue on this course as a parliamentarian. So uh, he's thinking, I'll quit my job maybe and, um, and, and, and maybe I'll become a pastor. Because we pastors tend to send the message that if you get really serious about your faith, you need to quit your job in the marketplace, quit your job at Boeing, quit your job uh, at, at Starbucks, quit your job in the sales force, and, and go to seminary and follow Jesus. Nothing could be further for the truth. We need infinitely times more people who love Jesus but are out there in the marketplace making a killing than we do pastors on a pulpit. In fact, one of my pet peeves is to see short-term missions people leave churches, step over their own cul-de-sacs to do in a third world country what they won't even do in their own neighborhood. If you can't represent Jesus in your cubicle, don't try to represent him from the stage at a church. Jesus is saying to us this morning, you can make a difference right where you are as a stay-at-home mom, as a landscaper, as a teacher, as a plumber, as a CEO. You can make a difference. 
And yet here's William Wilberforce, he's wrestling with this, and so praise God, right before he turns in his resignation, he goes to see the man who mentors him, a man by the name of John Newton. Yeah, that's right, some of us know that name. It was John Newton who himself dabbled in the slave trade. He commandeered a ship called the Greyhound, and they would sail down to the west coast shores of Africa, beat and bound slaves, pack them under inhumane conditions, sail them through the middle passage, and sell them into bondage. This he did scores of time, until one day, Jesus got a hold of John's life. Someone had given him a book that's still in print today, written by Thomas Akempis, called The Imitation of Christ. And here he is, thumbing through the pages of this book, where just the night before, he almost drowned in the sea in a shipwreck, and he's thankful just to be alive. And it's at that moment where God saves his soul. He leaves the lucrative slave trading industry. He becomes a follower of Jesus Christ and would go on to become a pastor. And yet, if you know anything about John Newton, you know that he struggled with the guilt and shame of his past until one day he's with his friend William Cooper. And as he describes it, a beacon of light called grace shone through. He picks up the pen, dips it in the ink, and writes these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see. That's who William Wilberforce goes to see as he's contemplating his resignation in the fall of 1787. Shares with his mentor his dilemma. How can I claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, yet give leadership to a nation that is thriving off of the social evil and socioeconomic injustice of slavery? Uh, John, I've got to quit. And John says these words to William Wilberforce, words that would not only change the trajectory of his life, but all of human history. He says to him verbatim, it is hoped and believed, young Wilberforce, that the Lord has raised you up for the good of the nation. Your vocation can become a viable venue to advance the purposes of God. These words strengthen William. Christmas Eve, just a few months later, he stands in front of Parliament and gives a six-hour address. I promise you, I ain't going to talk that long. And in this address, one of the things he says is, my great aim is the abolition of the trade. All others are secondary. I will not rest until I have affected its cause. Yeah, they're silent just like you. Which, which by the way, um, you know, I, I just understand I'm in a multi-ethnic setting. I want to give you permission to talk back to me. You, know, you can say amen, preacher, brother. It actually makes me preach faster because I know you're getting it. I know some of y'all ain't used to this. This is some of our amens is, hmm. hmm. Someone talk to me. Amen, preacher, brother. When you're ready to go home, say land the plane, bring it on home, and we'll land the plane and bring it on home. But this is what happens with William Wilberforce. He, he declares this and no one says anything. In fact, later on they would say, are you crazy, man? We pay our bills off the trade. We buy our homes off the trade. We buy our food off the trade. We pay our kids tuition at private school off the trade. What are you trying to do to us? And for the next 20 years, William Wilberforce gives all that he can, this white man, to stand up for the least of these. Him and his friends 
say stuff like, the slave trade is thriving in the West Indies on the sugar plantations. What if we give up sugar until the slaves are freed? So for 20 years, these Jesus-loving white folk who stand up for the least of these don't eat sugar. For 20 years, they're ridiculed. For 20 years, they're seen as these outliers. For 20 years, they're made fun of until finally in February of 1807, in a landmark vote, England votes to abolish the trade. At a party that evening, one of William Wilberforce's colleagues comes up to him. He clearly was annoyed, did not vote in favor of the bill. He says, well, now that you've finally gotten what you want, uh, are you satisfied? What's next? And without skipping a beat, William Wilberforce said, I will look for something else to abolish. 26 years later, 1833, Three days before William Wilberforce dies, England, having already voted to abolish the trade, now votes to outlaw slavery and the slaves are free and clear. 32 years later, rippling across the Atlantic in these here United States of America, the 13th Amendment is ratified and a little-known slave named Peter Luritz, working the plantations of Asheville, North Carolina, is set free and emancipated. That is my great-great-granddaddy and I'm here in Charleston. In South Carolina on February 7, 2016, preaching to a multi ethnic group of people because a 25 year old white man gave his life. For the least of these. And I'm here to tell you, Charleston, that God has not called you just to have church, He's called us to be. Be the church. And a part of what it means to be the church is to give your life for the least of these. It doesn't matter if you're black or you're white. Your very salvation is premised on this reality. You and I were spiritually bankrupt, headed for eternity in hell. Yet Jesus Christ, in grace and mercy, gave his life for us. And it is the epitome of hypocrisy to have received the generosity of Jesus and not be be generous towards others. But Jesus Christ says in this text, strikes at the heart of those of us who live in the Disney world of our world. He says, Brian, if life for you is all about possessions... If life for you is all about working hard to get the raise to up the standard of living and you give no consideration to those on the other side of the tracks, if life for you is a starter house and then a bigger house and then a bigger house and a bigger house and you do nothing for the poor, it could very well mean you ain't saved. These words are troubling words. It sounds as if what Jesus is saying is, what gets you into the kingdom is what you do for the poor. And that sounds like work salvation. I teach a class called hermeneutics. 
Hermeneutics is a big churchy word. It simply means the science and art of biblical interpretation. And one of the things I teach my students in hermeneutics is a fundamental principle of Bible study methods is you never come to a passage of Scripture and build and base a doctrine from that passage of Scripture alone. Instead, you take your findings from that passage and you relate it to the whole. And one of the things that we understand as we look at Matthew 25, 31 to 46 through the lens of all of Scripture is there's no way Jesus could be preached work salvation because from Genesis through Revelation the message is clear I am saved by grace through faith Genesis chapter 15 God comes to Abram and it says of Abram in Genesis chapter 15 that Abram simply believed God and it was accredited unto him as righteousness he didn't go to church first I know they didn't have church back then but work with me he didn't offer a sacrifice first He didn't tithe first. He simply believed, and boom, he was saved. In fact, if you study the life of Abram, what you'll understand is he had a lying problem. Even after he got saved, he kept lying about his wife, saying it was his sister, and yet he's saved before he tells the lies. In Genesis chapter 15, he's saved. In Genesis chapter 17, he's circumcised, which means this. Even under the Old Testament paradigm, faith, precedes works I could take you to the book of Exodus Exodus chapter 12 God says to the nation of Israel one final plague is coming your way and this time you all will be included in it but here's how you get out of it it is the plague of the death of the firstborn take the spot the, take the blood of a spotless lamb and put it over the doorposts of your of your houses and when the death angel sees the blood of the spotless lamb he will pass over pass over that's where we get it from pass over your home Every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture, and this Old Testament picture speaks to what we must do to be saved. All we must do to be saved, if you're, not, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, all you must do to be saved is to take the blood of the ultimate spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, by faith, apply it to your heart, and you shall be saved. And isn't it interesting in the Exodus event chronologically, God frees them first and then gives them the commandments. He does not give them the Ten Commandments first and say, do this and then I'll free you. Instead, He frees them and then calls them to obey. You take it to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated His love towards us in that while, while, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My favorite word in Romans 5, 8, it isn't God, it isn't demonstrated, it isn't loved. It is while, while, while. The good news of the gospel is that God sees us as is, accepts us as is, loves us as is, saves us as is, yet by His grace never leaves us as is. And then Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Paul says, don't you know? It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. I think I've made my case. There's no way Jesus is talking about work salvation because from Genesis through Revelation, we are saved and sustained by grace. But, 
Salvation is a mystery. As my grandmama used to say, honey, not everybody talking about heaven is going. Matthew chapter 7, a group of religious people come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, aren't you going to let us into the kingdom? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. They say, what are you talking about? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal in your name? And Jesus says, yes, thank you again, but depart from me, I never knew you. The great tragedy of hell is hell will have many parking spaces reserved for those who sang in choirs, served as deacons, went to seminaries. Just because you hang out in the same environment no more makes you a Christian than you standing in your garage makes you a car. And God deliver us from Bible Belt Christianity, this pseudo-Christianity that says, I can act hellish Monday through Saturday, come to church, sing a few songs, and think as if everything is okay. It is not okay. Just because your mama went to church, your grandmama went to church, your great-grandmama went to church, does not make you saved. Bless you, mother. So how do I know that I'm saved? C.S. Lewis at Oxford once said these words. He says, you know, when we get to heaven, we will be surprised on two fronts. One, we will be surprised at who is there that we knew for sure would not be. And two, he said, we will be surprised at who is not there that we knew for sure would be. Salvation is a mystery. So how do I know that I'm saved? One word, fruit. In Matthew 7, Jesus says twice, you will recognize them not by the prayers that they pray, but by their fruits. What is fruit? Fruit is a changed and changing lifestyle that cannot be blamed on the normal maturation process of adulthood, but it is a changed and changing lifestyle that is in direct relationship to the person, presence, and power of the Spirit of God living inside of me. In other words, every follower of Jesus Christ should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their journey with Jesus and conclude two things. One, I am not all the way there. I grew up in the black church and we used to sing a song written by James Cleveland in which he said, please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. I ain't all the way there yet, but two, I should be able to conclude in my journey with Jesus as I look through the rear view that while I'm not all the way there, I'm not all the way where I once was. He is changing me. Like my pastor, Bishop Omer, used to say. He said in front of 13,000 people, so I don't mind saying it to you. He put his business out there. He says, you know, when I first got saved, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat. But now, since following Jesus, I don't cuss that fast anymore. (laughs) Now, I'm not giving you license to cuss, but now we all know there's times when you cut us off on the freeway and we ain't prayed that day. 
I want to pull up next to you and speak to you in sign language. I, I want to have my own little sign language ministry, right? Right there on the freeway. We all understand that. And yet the truth of the matter is, if you're still the same old hellish of a husband you were when you first got married, how can you say you are saved 10 years later? Now, what does this have to do with our text? One scholar tells us that Matthew 25, 31 to 46 has nothing to do with the root of salvation, but it has everything to do with the fruit of salvation. You missed that. One scholar tells us our passage has nothing to do with how you get into the kingdom, but it's how you know if the kingdom has gotten into you. A greedy, self-centered, self-absorbed, hoarding person who does nothing for the poor does not have a biblical toe to stand on that they're saved. This ain't a Fox issue. It ain't an MSNBC issue. It ain't a CNN issue. Last I checked, God doesn't ride the backs of donkeys or elephants. In fact, if the body of Christ would only do what God says to do with their money, we wouldn't have to outsource our poor on the government. I, I, I know, I know, I know. Ron Sider in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, he says the average American Christian only tithes 2.5% of their income. He says if we could just get the American church to tithe, there's enough resources in the American church to cure global hunger. Stop getting upset on Obama about the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. We wouldn't even have to worry about that if the church would just take care of its own. There's something disingenuous about churches getting into tens of millions of dollars in debt and then getting upset at a president. Yeah, my flight leaves at 3 o'clock. And we've got to stop letting Glenn Beck, Al Sharpton, Larry Elder, and all these other talking heads disciple us more than Jesus. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says these words. Watch out for greed. Think about it. Watch out for greed. Of all the sins he could have said watch out for, why greed? Why does he say watch out for lying? Watch out for adultery? Because in every other sin, you know you've crossed the line right when you've done it. That's 
But greed is so subtle, you don't realize you've crossed the line until you're miles past it. I got one point and I'm done. In your Bible, there are over 2,350 verses that talks about God's heart for the poor, the alien, we would call that the illegal immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. In your Bible, there are over 2,350 verses that talk about God's heart for the poor, the alien, the widow, and the orphan. Wayne Grudem says the Bible is a transcript of God's heart. And we cannot claim to have God's heart if we do nothing for the poor, the widow, the alien, or the orphan. In Leviticus, God says to the nation of Israel, he's setting up their economy. It's an agrarian society, which means they're living off the fruit of the land. He says these words, listen. He says, when you go to your field, do not glean to the edges of your field. Rather, leave margins in your field for the poor to come and glean. This is God's welfare policy. But please notice the difference between God's welfare policy and America's. God's welfare policy is a system not of enablement, but of empowerment. He does not say just give the poor people food. No, he says leave margins in your field for the poor to come and glean. Translation, if they're hungry, let them come to your field and give them the dignity of work. By the way, you do know this is how Boaz meets Ruth. He's just following what the Bible says. Fellas, that's single fellas, that's some good advice. He says, he says, leave margin. The New Testament principle of it is this. My wife and I were wrestling with this. We believe the New Covenant principle is this. That God is saying to the Loritz household, Brian and Corey, as you look at your budget, leave margin. Brian and Corey, do not do the typical American thing of get the raise, max out the budget. Get the raise, max out the budget. Get the raise or overextend the budget and get into consumer credit card debt. He says leave margin. If the body of Christ would just do this, again, we don't need government. Leave margin. I did doctoral work at uh, Oxford University. If you know anything about Oxford University, it's a collection of 38 colleges 
Whenever I would go, I would always stu- study at Keeble College, and across the street from Keeble College was Lincoln College. I would always take some time to tour Lincoln College whenever I was there, because if you know anything about Lincoln College, that is the place where John Wesley, the great founder of the Methodist Church, attended as a college student. When he was 18, 19 years of age at Lincoln College of Oxford, John Wesley asked himself this question. He says, how much do I need to live off of for this year? How much is enough? He says, I believe I can live off of 28 pounds. Anything I get over 28 pounds, I will give away. That first year, he, he made 30 pounds, lived off the 28, gave the other two away. At the end of that year, he says, hmm, I shall do that for the rest of my life. 28 pounds is enough for me. If you don't know anything about John Wesley, you know that he made a lot of money later on in life through the sale of what he would call his pamphlets or what we would now call his books. One year he made 1,500 pounds, but he lived off the 28 and gave the other 1,472 pounds away. John Wesley wrestled with a question most American Christians don't even consider. It is the question of enough. How much is enough house? How much are enough shoes? How much are enough purses? No, 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 Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. I want you to receive this rebuke in Jesus' name. Sit. Hear me. No, 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 no. When did greed become something to laugh at? When did that become funny? It's not funny. This is a tough word. God has designed the Christian life where his primary instrumentation of care to hurting people is you and I, and we can't get there if we don't have margin. So we laugh. My wife and I wrestle with this every day of my life. And I want you to hear me. This is not about you can't take nice vacations. This is not about you can't buy nice things. Materialism is not about possessing nice things, but it is about those things possessing you. 1 Timothy says God has created all things for our enjoyment. Have the nice dinner. Go on the cruise. But along the way, have some margin. So God is calling the church of Charleston to rise up. And what would it look like for the church of Charleston to believe in a God so generously
That you could one day say, there's no poor among us. What would it be for the church of Charleston to say, look at our orphan care system like my friend Robert Gelinas did in Aurora, Colorado, and God gave him a vision. What if our church would adopt every orphan in the state of Colorado? He believed God that, that much, and for one year they emptied out the foster care system. And now a word to my African-American brothers and sisters. There's a book called Our Kinds of People in which he argues the most elitist group of people in this country are middle to upper middle class African Americans. And I tend to believe them. Because we African Americans, we tend to base our success on the geographic distance we place from where we grew up to where we now live. And then we want to complain about white folk and how they adopt our babies and don't do their hair. What are we doing? This is not a color issue. It is a kingdom issue. I end with this story. We know the name Tony Campolo. He's, he's come under fire lately for some unfortunate positions he's made. But he tells a story of the time in which this preacher slash sociologist, which is him, left Philadelphia to go speak in Hawaii, and he's there, and because of jet lag, he can't sleep at night. And this is where our story picks up. Up a side street, Tony says, I found a little place that was still open. I, I went in, took a seat at one of those stools at the counter, and waited to be served. This is one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I, I mean, I didn't even touch the menu. I was, I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out. But it was the only place I could find. The guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? I told him, a cup of coffee. Hold off on the music, please. A cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee. And as I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday, I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, so what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I, I don't want anything from you. I, I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why, why should I have one now? Tony says, when I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the women had left. Then I called over the guy behind the counter, and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come in here every night? Yeah, he said. That's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say tomorrow's her birthday, Tony said. What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked out some crepe paper direct, uh, decorations at the store and had made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had the diner looking good. Now, the woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 
At 3.30 in the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready, uh, and when they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday. Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open, her legs seemed to buckle a bit, her feet, her friend grabbed her arm to steady her as she was led to one of the stools along the counter. We all sang happy birthday to her as we came to the end of our singing, happy birthday dear Agnes, happy birthday to you. Her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles lit on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles Agnes, come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles myself. And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake, then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, it's okay if I kind of, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you're going to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home and show it to my mother, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly toward the door. As we all stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner at Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? One of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment, then he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, Harry said, I'd join it. Oh, Church of Charleston, don't you see? Our greed has become an impediment to those in the world joining our ranks. It's when you're generous. And generosity has nothing to do with the amount of zeros in your bank account. Let's face it. If you won't be generous with $10, you won't be generous with 10000 Oh, that we would be generous. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. That though He was rich... Yet for our sakes, he became poor. So that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Father, I pray over your people this morning. It's a tough word. It challenges cuts against the grain of cultural American Christianity. God, would you just speak to us in in your own way? May we wrestle with the question John Wesley wrestled with, the question of enough. 
oh God, I need that word in my own life. There's times in which I think I'm doing good and there's times when I fail miserably. Oh God, that you would show us what justice looks like. And that this would be the church. God has been speaking to you, I want to invite you to just take a few moments to linger in His presence. You can linger at your seats. You can come to the altar. Let's not rush past this. Our worship team is going to sing a little bit. They're going to draw us into the generosity of God. God who paid it all for us. If you don't know this, Jesus, we want to invite you to speak to myself, Marcus, Philip, several of us, of us will be down front. We'd love to show you how you can walk with this Savior. But let's let the Spirit of God do business right now in this place, in our hearts. Amen.